0: This is a crowd podcast.
1: This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel.
0: Einstein. James Dean. Brooklyn's got a winning team. Davy Crockett. Peter Pan. Elvis Presley. Disneyland. Bardo. Budapest.
2: Alabama. Khrushchev. Princess
0: Grace. Peyton Plays. Dribble in the Suez. Ah! Hello again and welcome to episode 55 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that cracks open Billy Joel's rock'em, sock'em, action-packed hit song for the most surprising stories of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick.
2: And I am Tom Fordyce.
0: How did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks... It might have something to do with trouble in the Suez. Trouble in the Suez. Uh, that was a l- hard
2: one for me, Katie, yeah, I'll a l- be honest. A
0: lot, of, a lot of growling involved. I'm glad that the growling <laughs> fell to you. Now, as you may recall from our last conversation with today's uh, expert, Tara Gosman, the Suez crisis was a malicious kerfuffle. That would diminish Britain's world standing and severely damage relationships between multiple nations for years to come. And uh, it all began with the seizure of the Suez Canal. But um, at the time, I don't know. I mean, I didn't exist at the time, number one. Number two, it felt like something that was so complex and so far in the past that I didn't really have a sense of of what it was. But, of course, I'm an American and you're a British person, Tom. Yes, I am. And it was... A little bit of a bigger deal, a, bit, a bigger stain on the British copybook.
2: Yeah, when you hear about Suez as a kid growing up in Britain, Katie, it's generally seen to be the final bookend in a period of maybe 250, 300 years of colonialism. It's like the end of that period. It's just like the sort of the unhappy ending where it all went wrong and everything fell apart. <laughs> After that. But I don't know much more about it than that, Katie, which is why I'm glad to say, and as you have mentioned, we are joined once again by our friend Tarek Osman, the author, political economist and broadcaster who focuses on the Arab and the Islamic worlds. He is live from Cairo. Welcome back,
1: Tarek. Hello, Tom and Katie. Thank you for having me back.
0: So first things first, Tarek, why did Egyptian leader Gamal Abdel Nasser seize and nationalize the Suez Canal?
1: There are probably two answers to your question, Katie. The the short answer is Nasser wanted to build a dam to make use of the waters of the Nile, which are the most important asset for Egypt. Uh, You would know Herodotus, the very famous Greek historian once said, Egypt is the gift of the Nile. Without the Nile, there's no Egypt. And something like 70, 80% of the waters of the Nile would just flow rapidly from East Africa all the way down to the Mediterranean without the best usage of that for agricultural reasons, industrial reasons, what have you. And there were this idea for many years, actually, in Egypt that if there was some sort of a really high, strong, substantial dam, that could make a huge difference to Egyptian agricultural industry, electrification, and development in general. And that was a major developmental project for this young leader who had just uh, took over Egypt ended the Egyptian monarchy was negotiating with Britain for independent the independence of Egypt so massive developments at the time and there was this dramatic project that has a lot or had a lot of emotional value for Egyptians.
0: Right, so it was psychologically important and this was the Aswan
1: Dam. The this was the Aswan Dam. Dam. The high Aswan yeah. Dam and Aswan absolutely. But the long story okay. short is that there was something a very small needed which is called money. How do you simply ah. fund this huge construction of uh, the construction of this huge project? And Nasser, or Egypt, was engaging with a number of international financial institutions, most prominently the World Bank. However, there were many problems with that channel of financing. And in Nasser's reading, and actually in many readings, not only Nasser, but it is not agreed upon by all sources anyway, in Nasser's reading, the West stopped the World Bank from financing the high dam in Aswan. So what does Nasser do? He responds by nationalizing the Suez Canal, which was, by the way, almost fully Western-owned company based in Egypt with incredible legal prerogatives that makes it almost a state within the state. So it was completely outside Egyptian jurisdiction, Egyptian uh, legal laws outside any uh, potential implementation of any uh, decisions by the Egyptian government, what have you.
0: And also, it's kind of a big power play anyway between all of these states, because you have the U.S., you have the U.K. uh, looking at Egypt in a very covetous fashion, especially the U.K. sort of just feels like it's their playground. And they didn't like that Nasser was doing a little wheeling and dealing with Khrushchev and the Soviet Union. They're like, wait a minute, those are the bad guys. And I mean, Nasser probably felt like, hey, look, I'm a free agent. I can buy weapons from whoever I want to buy from. But I think didn't that make the Americans, for instance, quite nervous?
1: Absolutely. It was extremely interesting time. I mean, just just remember, we are talking here mid 1950s. So the New World Order, as they used to say at the time after the end of the Second World War, the very beginning of the Cold War, was shaping up. And the Middle East was extremely important for one very simple reason, oil. Oil was starting to flow incredibly uh, from Iran, from Saudi Arabia, from the Gulf. It was obviously the most important strategic asset in the world, fueling the reconstruction of Europe and of Asia after the World, the Second World War. So the Middle East was incredibly important. And of course, it was the time when, to put it politely, the British Empire was more or less going into its sunset and the two new powers were taken over on one side, the US, on the other side, the Soviet Union. And the Middle East was, was a theater of the interaction between all of those players. There were a number of, of dynamics in the air that were laying the ground for Egypt to get gradually outside of the control of the British Empire. But then Nasser takes over and the Egyptian monarchy, and he wants to get that done extremely quickly. And... Because he was building this charisma and this Arab nationalist project, there was the idea of this is a big prize that either the U.S. and behind it the West or the Soviet Union and its camp would want on its side. And Nasser was very smart. Nasser initially was trying to play the two sides of each other so that he can get benefits from both. Sides.
0: And, of course, America had this misconception that naturally all the Arab countries and Israel will unite against communism and the Soviet Union, kind of missing the point, not reading the room that, you know, Soviet Union is kind of far away. Arab countries are a little more concerned that Israel is right on their doorstep and, you know, they feel like they're natural enemies and uh, they're not inclined to join this American project against communism. So it's kind of interesting that like psychologically, everybody's working with different information.
1: Absolutely, and I think the word psychological also is important. But I would say, obviously, Israel was an issue because there was the 1948 war between a number of Arab countries on one side and Israel on on the side and after which the state of Israel was created. So Israel, of course, was, was an issue in that theater. But I think the point about communism is, is crucial, what you brought uh, forward, Katie. The U.S. indeed, and, and when you look at the papers of State Department, for example, or the CIA, and actually both of them were run by two brothers, the Dallas brothers at the time. Oh,
0: yeah. uh, mm-hmm. When
1: you look at the papers of them, there was indeed this assumption in the late 40s, early 50s, That the arab world of course will be with us with the free world against communism and keep in mind that the us was at the time effectively the new power that will protect the most important asset the arab has which is oil so it was assumed that this is natural especially that egypt at the time was also very westernized indeed many regimes in the Arab world thought that communism is a threat, but also many regimes in the Arab world, certainly the Nasser's regime in Egypt, thought that to fall under the control of the West is an equally important threat that they do not want to be subjected to. The great thing, Katie, about having uh...
2: Billy Joel, as our guru, as our leader, is that he has educated us in most of the main players in this drama all the way back towards the start of our time together. We learnt about Eisenhower. Yep. Tarik has educated us about Nasser, mm-hmm. And Natalia Chernosova has educated us about Khrushchev. Right. The one person we haven't found out about so far, Tarek, is Anthony Eden,
1: who is the Prime Minister of Great Britain. Tell us all about him. Antony Eden, I think, is is extremely interesting character in this specific episode, this Suez Crisis, because one, Antony Eden knew Egypt very well. Antony Eden, as I mentioned, was the representative of Great Britain who signed the Anglo-Egyptian Treaty in 1936 with the Egyptian authorities at the time. Now, this might be a very obscure treaty that nobody remembers. However, at the time it was crucial because it was the treaty that regulated the relationship between Egypt, which was at the time the most important country in the Middle East in many ways, and Britain, the superpower that controlled the region, And because this was a lengthy and actually at times painful uh, negotiations, Eden really got to to know Egypt very well. So he assumed in 1955, 1956, during the time of of Suez, that he not only is trying to defend the presence of Britain in the Middle East at a time when the British Empire was more or less on its sunset period, he was also defending some sort of a legacy he knew the country he was negotiating with he signed a very important treaty with the previous regime of that country he spent many weeks in that country over many years when he was foreign minister of britain be- before becoming prime minister one of the most important dossiers that he dealt with was Egypt. That's on one on one side an important factor to keep in mind. So he, he assumed that he's qualified really to design the relationship. On the other side, he also saw in Nasser some sort of a Hitler as he actually described him. But the point is there was an, an exact opposite character in front of him. Eden, as you know much more than I do, was the product of the British establishment in, in a in almost all sorts of ways, in his education, in his lifestyle in his mannerisms. Eton, Oxbridge. Exactly. He's gone he is the heart of the establishment. Exactly. Isn't he? And he sounds that way when you hear him as well. Exactly. You see what, see the old footage. Exactly. exactly. Nasser on the other side is the exact opposite. This is a man who comes from Upper Egypt. They didn't have any of the refinement channels, shall we say, that the British establishment endows on its sons and daughters. A military man as opposed to a man of cultural salons and of Oxford, such as Eden. Culturally, lifestyle, worldviews, mannerisms, you name it. In every single aspect, these were two people who are completely opposite to each other. But also, importantly, I think this treaty i refer to that eden negotiated with the previous regime in egypt and signed in 1936 and he actually considered one of his achievements as a foreign minister of britain he saw so egypt pre nasser he saw so monarchical egypt he saw so liberal cosmopolitan cairo that is the cairo that nasser ended this is the era that nasser put an end to and After that, Nasser was transforming Egypt into a very different type of, not just a state, but also a society. From Nasser's point of view, Nasser was this revolutionary Arab nationalist who believed that Britain dominated the Arab world for so many decades that it not just dominated, it also designed the Arab world the way it wanted. And Nasser wanted a complete destruction of that Arab world. And in his mind, in his eyes, Eden, Anthony Eden was one of the architects of the world that he wanted to destroy. So also from Nasser's point of view, it was personal.
0: He's an architect and he's an archetype of everything that Nasser wants to see the end of. And you can see from Eden's point of view that, you know, he has contempt for this person who, you know, how dare you challenge the status quo and almost this idea of, uh, you know, how dare you act like you have any say over your own country. One of Eden's colleagues apparently said that you only had to mention Nasser's name, and Eden practically got down on his hands and knees and chewed the carpet. After Nasser had nationalized the Suez Canal, what were the next moves? Because I, I think the idea was that Eden thought, well, they are obviously going to fail. There's no way they're going to be able to operate this complicated engineering of this canal. So so what actually happened? They didn't fail, did
1: they? There is one person who actually who was entrusted by Nasser to manage this process. And he's probably the only man in the entire history of the Egyptian Republic who was given all the prerogatives of the president of the Republic in the Suez Canal region for about three weeks. From the moment Nasser announced that Egypt has nationalized the canal for about three weeks, this man, his name is Mohammed Yunus, was given the entire executive authorities in the constitution to the president of the republic to do whatever he wants. Why? Because Nasser wanted this man to have no excuses whatsoever in managing the canal with one objective, that there will be absolutely no disruptions to the navigation. And it seems that he succeeded.
0: He succeeded. And then When that didn't gum up the works, Eden then sent a gigantic fleet of tankers to the canal. He's like, "Okay, you guys think you can operate this? Have 100 tankers and see what you can do with it.
1: It was also quite quite interesting because sometimes I mean now when you when we read some of of, of the history of that period seventy years after it I mean some of it's a bit a bit funny to be honest because some things were like you know trying to overwhelm the other with it's like you have somebody you don't like in your work and you tell them, all right, take these 20 files and please finish them by tomorrow morning or something <laughs> like that. And, and there's, yeah. there's a lot of that, not only by sending some uh, some ships, there was also lots of documentations that were, that were required to be submitted by the management of the Suez Canal uh, Company by its owners, by the way, who are who are Anglo-Franco uh, shareholders. So lots of details in which, yeah. basically, not just Anthony Eden, to be to be frank, but also some of the shareholders, and some of them were French institutions, who wanted to prove quickly, and quickly is an important point because they did not want it to become a normal state that now Egypt is running the canal and that everything is is okay, everything is as it was. They wanted very quickly to prove that there is a major disruption to international navigation in the Suez Canal. And I think that was also important in the British calculus on how to get American approval of any potential move against Nasser, because clearly the U.S. was more or less sitting on the edges in the weeks after the nationalisation, assessing the situation in the entire region. You often get the sense, Tarek, when
2: a major conflict happens, that there is a sense of inevitability about it. You can see the steps that have led to war. And I think when you see and you hear what Eden felt about NASA, you get an inevitability about the war. Um, The fact that he was on Benzedrine, that he was on speed pills, um, I don't think would have helped Katie necessarily his clear thinking. But Tarek, this, this idea of how critically important oil is also seems absolutely critical. So there was a school of thinking, wasn't there, in the British Foreign Office, that basically if Britain were denied Middle Eastern oil, then the next thing is that the gold reserves disappear. If the gold reserves disappear, then sterling starts to fall and then the country follows
1: with it. I personally think that there was a a wide calculus in Britain at that moment that transcends or transcended just the Suez Canal. So indeed, there was the look at the entire Middle East and... Iranian oil falling out of control of British hands. Adan, or Eden, in the south of the Arabian Peninsula, was also going through some turbulent times. Egypt already, the monarchy has fallen, which was one of the most important assets in the British Empire, especially when it comes to agricultural products. And now the Suez Canal within Egypt is now out of British control. Obviously, we know what was happening in India at the time. India was effectively getting out of British control. So the entire British Empire was effectively falling apart. And that had economic impact at the time when Britain was still suffering from the economic consequences of the Second World War. So I think Eden, despite his... The fact or the issues about concerns about his decision-making capacities at the time and what kind of pills he was taking or not, I think it was a difficult time for any decision-maker in Britain. And I think you're right. You're right, Tom, when you think there was some sort of inevitability to the use of force here or to the jump to a decision in which you will go into war. Because if you are the British Prime Minister and you see the most important pillars of the British Empire basically falling apart and you're going through a very difficult economic situation and you think the consequences of that will be even much more difficult economic situation and you are in a democracy you you know that you can lose elections you want a decisive action And what do you think? You are dealing with a weak country, you're dealing with a developing country, you're dealing with a country that was, until a few years ago, utterly under your control. Then you send the troops, you use force, everything will come under control, and it is an easy solution, of course. It turns out very differently. But I'm not surprised that he, he resorted to violence.
0: And he's, I mean, he obviously is suffering from hubris, Antony Eden, and underestimating the gumption and the grit of Nasser and the Egyptians. He really out and out wanted to have Nasser eliminated. There's talk of assassination attempts from the UK and France and Israel, poison in Nasser's coffee. There's nerve gas in the ventilation system, all sorts of things. He shots fired at speeches Um, that could have been from within the country, but certainly at a certain stage there's Anthony Eden in the UK deciding that's it we have to go to war but he has to drum up a pretext to go to war because no one's really broken any laws in Egypt I mean they've nationalized the uh, the Suez Canal but they're I imagine paying people what they need to be paid and it's not like they have stopped access to the Suez Canal it's still operating so what does Eden then do to drum up his justification for going to war with Egypt?
1: There was acute rejection, actually, from a number of important voices to the characterizations that Anthony Eden put about the whole situation and to the rush into war. And of course, there was the whole point of not telling the U.S. about going into yeah. war, which was a major yeah, why, problem.
0: That was a big problem. Why did he feel like he needed to keep it a secret?
1: Exactly, exactly, because that itself is is quite debatable. When you read the records, there's one argument that says that it was very clear that invading Egypt would trigger a Soviet response that would make the U.S. very uncomfortable in its calculations, basically, Ah, that the upside of gaining control of the Suez Canal does not equal the downside of a potential political, let alone more than political confrontation with the Soviet Union. I mean, that
0: would be be World War III, wouldn't it?
1: Later on, when we saw the response of the Soviet Union, when Khrushchev gave his very famous threat that some Western capitals, and he mentioned London, are not beyond the reach of uh, Soviet missiles, that was obviously a very scary sentence or threat to be uttered by the leader of the Soviet Union. Whether he really meant it or he was really bluffing, I personally think he was bluffing, if you want my opinion. But still, in the international milieu of the 50s, I don't think the US, and I think it's obviously very clear now that the US would not have condoned a rush to war if that was the expected response. Okay, so Britain needs
2: an excuse, France needs an excuse, And they settle, Tariq, upon this duplicitous plan in collaboration with Israel, which is done in a very strange part of France, a sleepy suburb of Paris called
1: Sèvres. So you basically here are referring to this plan which was interesting that it was written which is also a bit surprising because typically when you have a conspiracy you don't write it down right yeah <laughs> but here you have <laughs> three people or three three entities who actually have a conspiracy but they actually documented so i don't know whether that was very wise <laughs> but anyway no. so they documented at sav exactly and the pretext if i remember correctly that there is some sort of a landing of uh, troops from israel i think in certain places in Sinai who engage with Egyptian uh, forces and then basically, to be very honest, I'm not on top of the details here, but basically that becomes the pretext for Britain and France to say that they won't a uh, ceasefire between both sides, and if there's no ceasefire they will intervene and therefore very quickly they do intervene and this becomes the pretext for the invasion which did take place in October nineteen fifty six and which is referred to in Egypt as the tripartite invasion.
0: Ooh, Tom, if you don't mind, I need a moment, so it's just as well it's time for a commercial break.
1: Your daily
3: reality is the fact that at any moment, when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head.
1: Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're heading on holiday, but instead you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein.
0: All the tanks are in rows, and they're all pointing their guns at us at the hotel. And I've never seen anything like it in my life.
1: Imagine being used as a human shield,
3: put in the line of fire,
0: We're in trouble. We are under attack. Do not leave where you are.
3: That man has been shot. He has been shot. My God. Listen to the secret history of Flight 149 to hear the shocking story behind one of the biggest cover-ups in modern history.
0: We know the truth. We know what actually happened. I was there.
2: Subscribe now. So the decision has been made by Britain, by France and by Israel that they are going to invade Egypt. It seems, Tariq, that things speed up dramatically as is often the case when plans for war are made. You have quite a bellicose general on the British side, Hugh Stockwell. You've got a more spontaneous one on the French side, General both. But when the invasion happens, it happens fast. The 29th of October... 1956. And Egypt appears
1: to be underprepared for what is about to happen. Indeed. And actually, it's, it's quite interesting when you look at the Egyptian response, because Nasser being Nasser was very assertive, loud voice, challenging the Western powers here, obviously primarily Britain and France, but also Israel. And yet, When the invasion actually happens, he very quickly resorts to two things. He resorts to emotional narrative, emotional rhetoric. So he goes to Al-Azhar, the seat of Islamic learning in the entire Islamic world, at least in the entire Sunni Islamic world, a thousand years old university, actually, and mosque in downtown Cairo. And he gives a long, very emotional speech in which he says things like, I will stay with you. My family is here. Nobody is leaving the country. We will fight from street to street. We will fight from house to house. And this is coming with passion, with again from a very emotionally and culturally and civilizationally important place in Cairo, and, and emotions are rising. So there's this rhetoric of drumming up, I don't know if that's the right word in English or not, but let's say drumming up emotions in Egypt and actually beyond Egypt this speech remains probably one of the most memorable speeches across the entire Arab world and at the same time you have demonstrations erupted in Damascus in Amman in Jordan in Beirut in Lebanon in Tunis even in Morocco in support of Egypt and Nasser and actually there were attacks on British pipelines oil pipelines in Syria in support of what's happening in Egypt. And then the second thing, to so the first thing is the emotional response and the rhetoric and drumming up emotions all over the Arab world, not just in Egypt. The second thing is a very quick resort in Egypt towards what is referred to in Egypt as popular resistance. You can just call yeah. it street guerrilla fighting, basically. Where in the three main cities in or on the Suez Canal. And actually, one of them is called Suez. So the idea is, fine, they land. We will not really able to fight them through our organized forces, but we will fight them as a people, as a nation.
0: And the troops who landed were really surprised by the resistance, weren't they? Because these were civilian soldiers who did not have the world's best equipment and they were putting up a good old fight
1: absolutely because well at that time it's also quite interesting this this was really the high moment not one of but probably the high moment of arab nationalism where Colonialism is is falling apart all over the Arab world, and beyond the Arab world, there was this new star-rising Nasser who embodies Arab nationalism all over the region. There were new governments popping up, and even if some of them were super close, actually, to the West, still they were paying lip service to the idea of Arab nationalism. There was optimism about the idea of Arab unity, and all of that meant that people were incentivized to stand up to what they believed was their assets, what belongs to them.
0: Also, there were demonstrations in Britain. There were demonstrations in America. In the U.S., Eisenhower was enraged because the strike happened right before the U.S. presidential election. So that was a bad miscalculation, I think, on part of the U.K., because then the U.S., of course, led the charge In squashing the invasion, they were pressuring the International Monetary Fund to withhold funds to Great Britain until they agreed to a ceasefire. Said the pressure was on.
1: Eisenhower is one of the characters who are usually not invoked enough in this crisis. People usually, observers, usually pay a lot of attention to Anthony Eden, to Nasser, to Khrushchev because of the Soviet Union threat to Britain and France. But I think If there was one man who really ended the whole thing, it was Eisenhower. Because Eisenhower, as you put it, Katie, rightly, was enraged for two reasons. One, how come Britain and France engage in a major military operation during or at the beginning of what seemed to be obviously a huge major confrontation between the West and the East, between the US and behind it the West and the Soviet Union on the other side, in the Middle East, the land of oil, one of the most important strategic theaters in the world. How come Britain and France engage in such an endeavor or start such uh, an adventure without the full green light of the U.S., let alone without telling the U.S.? So obviously mm-hmm. he was—he saw it as beyond a blunder. He saw it as beyond a mistake. And then number two, of course, the calculations that he is going into presidential election and for an American president to engage in such a situation right before a presidential election. Obviously, he saw it as far from from helping him. And his response was not just pressuring the IMF to effectively put economic pressures or pressure on Britain, but in a way, the statements of the US at that time, I don't want to say were humiliating to Anthony Eden. But given the special relationship between the U.S. and Britain, and given that Britain at the time had troops on the ground fighting, the last thing a British government and a British prime minister want is to have the American president effectively castigating him in public.
0: Right.
2: The anti-war feeling that there is in Britain seems to grow over the course of the summer leading up to the invasion, but also during the invasion. So there is a line from Hugh Getsgill, who's the Labour leader, who describes the invasion as an act of disastrous folly whose tragic consequences we shall regret for years. And then when the ceasefire happens on the 2nd of November, after the United Nations General Assembly has called for one and called for a withdrawal. It's almost like this grand plan, Tarek, hatched between Great Britain and France and Israel, falls apart
1: at pace. I think you or Katie, Tom, who said the word inevitable or inevitability to the whole thing, Britain had already lost a lot of its soft power in the Middle East, lost a lot of its influence, lost a lot of its friends, especially in Egypt, actually. So probably the only thing that was left for that wounded line, which is Britain, was probably one last attempt to jump and use the clothes done in a very bad way done with immense folly, without any wisdom, without consulting your most important friend and ally, the US, without thinking of what the Soviet Union would do, and more importantly, without thinking what actually the Egyptians would do. Right. But I see that inevitability.
0: What did the whole Suez brouhaha do for Nasser? It turned him into a god, didn't it? Oh, wow!
1: I I like to say that was the moment of catapulting Nasser from a president to a historical leader, not just a leader of the of the era. That was the moment that uh, at which Nasser became became a symbol. Really, this is the moment when lots of people, millions, millions. Millions, tens of millions of Arab worlds projected their own aspirations, their own dreams, if you want, their own delusions, if you want, onto Nasser. At the time, actually, maybe I'm being harsh, at the time, it did not seem to be delusion. It seemed to be dreams. And he became the embodiment of that dream.
0: Tarek, tell us a story of how the actual nationalization of the Suez Canal went down. It was during a speech or triggered by Nasser's speech?
1: It was triggered by uh, one word during the speech that Nasser was giving at the time. And basically, right before that speech, there were a number of units that were waiting for Nasser to utter one specific word. And if he did utter it, they were to move immediately in Suez, in Port Said, in Ismailia. These are three or the most important three cities on the Suez Canal, where the Suez Canal Company had its major offices, as well as in Cairo, but in these main three cities. And they were to take control of the offices of the Suez Canal Company and basically execute the takeover of the company and of the canal. But the interesting thing was the word itself, Kati, because the word, the code word that if Nasser was to utter it, they were to move, was Deliseps. Now, Deliseps is the name of the French engineer and administrator who was the man behind the Suez Canal itself. He was the man who dreamed of this maritime link between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea, and who managed to convince Khedive Said, Khedive is a title, an Ottoman title, basically means the ruler of Egypt, and his name was Said, in the 1850s and 1860s, to actually dig, get from him the mandate to dig that canal. And Deliseps, in many ways, represented in the Egyptian psyche two things. One, the idea of the vision behind the Suez Canal, and that's obviously a positive thing, but also it represented the idea of a Western power taking a full mandate, effectively from an Ottoman Turkish ruler in Egypt to dig that asset, control it, manage it, own it, utterly beyond Egyptian control. So you think that there's obviously lots of connotations behind that name, and lots of these connotations are actually quite negative. And the way Nasser uttered the name in that speech, it came in the context of that decades after Deleseps had dreamed up that project and managed to execute it but for the benefit of the best of the west we are now taking over what we own what is ours and the moment those units heard the name deliceps they started to move
0: so at the end of the trouble in the suez the feeling in britain certainly was a loss of innocence Uh, One of the journalists covering the British home front said that Suez marked the end of British trust in their government and in the state, the sudden realization that the state could be criminal, that the British government could lie, cheat, and commit aggression. So that was a big wake-up call, Tom, I would have thought, where... Before, you know, people had just come out of World War Two thinking, you know, we're the good guys. Yeah, we're the good guys. We defeated the Nazis. And uh, now maybe we're the baddies.
2: Yeah. And the the thing that strikes me, Katie, is that Eden becomes an increasingly tragic figure because he does three volumes of his autobiography, which is obviously showing a certain amount of ego. And in none of them does he ever admit to the tripartite deal with France and Israel, and he actually stipulates that it can't, nothing can come out from his friends until after his death. So Tara, he strikes me as a tragic figure, and if Britain struggled to leave the Suez crisis behind, then Anthony Eden never left it behind.
1: In many circles in Britain at the time, there was some sort of denial of the enormity of the mistake of the fault that suez represented because you can think at least in my mind the british empire was obviously coming to an end the the colonial era was obviously coming to an end but the fast pace and the the fall of the pillars of that empire almost immediately during and right after suez was at such a pace that was probably unthinkable a few years before suez and i think this is a great shock for someone with the career and experience of Anthony Eden. And I think for many people in that circle, that probably it's understandable that you'd have that denial, that that insistence of or on not really discussing that, on even some sort of victimization, which was almost clear in some of the comments made by Eden and some people around him. But let me say one thing about the word innocence, because I see that you are referring to how Britain saw itself or the British society saw Britain as a state emerging from the Second World War. We were the one who fought Nazism and fascism in Europe. We are the good guys and how come we do this? How come we engage in this conspiracy? But Britain in the Middle East was never seen as innocent, was always seen as powerful, as smart as the best architect as the best schemer and the way suez was handled the way the whole crisis began managed or was managed and ended showed a very different britain that was far from smart at that moment, Mm -hmm. was far from powerful at that moment, was far from being a great schemer at that moment. So it was not a loss of innocence from the Arabs' point of view. It was when you used to see a line so strong, so powerful, and then you see it so feeble, so uninteresting, so unintelligent. That was the moment when lots of people saw Britain's power and influence in the Middle East has ended.
0: It's absolutely a a complete loss of credibility. And in fact, Tarek, what you just said reminds me of a commentator who described the British officers uh, the way they felt let down by the government, that they felt like it was going to be the final roar of the British lion, and instead it was a mingy little squeak.
1: Beautifully put, Katie.
0: Tarek,
2: thank you so much for filling Katie and my head's with knowledge that wasn't there before, and explaining a very complex situation in ways that even Katie and I
1: can easily handle,
0: we could easily handle it, and especially with your melodious and mellifluous <laughs> voice, Terry.
1: My mellifluous voice—I need to really okay. understand what exactly mellifluous means, <laughs> guys. <laughs> it. Thank you very, very much for having me. Always a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate Wonderful. it. Wonderful. Ciao,
0: ciao. Thank you. Bye, bye. Ciao,
1: ciao.
2: Katie, it's at this part of the show that we usually discuss whether Billy has done a good thing or made a Billy boo-boo by including the topic in his song. But you know what? I have so much respect for Billy that I'm now flipping it round, and I'm thinking... Is this topic important enough for billy yeah
0: yeah <laughs> never mind his judgment <laughs> yeah. Does this deserve a place in the canon yeah of of life that is we didn't start the fire yeah no i think this really makes the cut and there are so many ins and outs in this topic i mean we couldn't even get to them all there here's another little tangy detail the collateral damage of the Suez crisis was Nasser's abolition of civil liberties. He kicks Egyptian Jews out of the country in the middle of all this in October 1956. He brought in a set of sweeping regulations abolishing civil liberties, allowing the state to stage mass arrests without charge, and basically just directing this aggro against Egyptian Jews. And this is something that was Put to my attention by my friend Joe, who wrote to me after he heard the Nasser mm. episode of We Didn't Start the Fire. And he wrote to me, all my life, I've been aware of this episode in history and the part it played in my family's destiny. As children of one of the most successful business-owning Jewish communities in Alexandria, my folks enjoyed a lotus-eating, privileged life. They had little to fear, as my grandfather's cotton was a world-famous product of Egypt. And they were settled in a community that accepted and appreciated their contributions. Then came Nasser and the Suez Crisis. And he goes on to say, Nasser kicked the Jews out of Egypt. My parents were among many who were forced to abandon their homes, businesses, lives, and leave with nothing. And most Egyptian Jews went to Israel. But my friend Joe says that his dad had an Anglophile streak. And after an English schooling in Alexandria, ran away to join the British army. And so he, his brother, and his sister all came to the UK. So they they managed to scrabble their way out of it. But, you know, there's a lot... It's interesting, you know you 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 hear Nasser's courage and gumption and grit in standing up to uh, fluffy Anthony Eden. But then, on the other hand, uh, there's some less salubrious sides to his character where he's just an anti-Semite who is uh, being just as bad to the minority in his own country mm. as he's being treated by other colonial countries.
2: that's so interesting, Katie, to get almost a sort of pointillist level of detail. When we've had the broad strokes from Tariq.
0: Yeah. Doing this podcast, Tom, is nothing if not whiplash-inducing, because hmm. this week uh, we've learned all about Egypt in the 1950s. Where are we going next week?
2: We're going to Little Rock, Katie, in Arkansas. Okay. For the next slice of our civil rights education.
0: There's a lot of civil unrest, isn't there? A lot of injustices, and Billy's right there leading us into the middle of, I want to say kerfuffle again, and I won't.
2: (laughs) Well, the thing is, Katie, as we know, the fire has always been burning um, since the world's been turning. Okay. Um, And that's really what I think what we're seeing here.
0: I think that's what what we're saying. That's what we're singing.
2: (laughs) If you would like another podcast to listen to before Katie and I come back, into your ears... Why not try The Secret History of Flight 149?
0: Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're going on a vacation, but instead you get taken hostage, what, by Saddam Hussein. It might sound a little far-fetched, but in August 1990, this really happened to the passengers and crew of British Airways Flight 149, and what followed has been dubbed the most shocking government cover-up of the last 30 years and now there's a new podcast about it.
2: There is Katie, yeah. Journalist Stephen Davis has been reporting on this story for the past three decades and in this series you'll hear directly from the hostages, the people used as human shields by the Iraqi regime. The secret history of Flight 149 we think you'll find it. Fascinating. Fascinating.
0: And if you want more fascination, <laughs> I've got plenty in my fascination pouch. Please follow us. You can follow us at Spread That Fire on all the socials. And also, don't forget to subscribe. And you also can subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel on Apple to get ad-free versions, but not kazoo-free, of this show, (laughs) as well as bonus content and ad-free versions of other crowd shows like American Vigilante and Murder in House 2.
2: If you're into fascinating, unique, real-life stories of real-life people, go and check out the Crowd Stories channel.
0: Tom, I... I'm sorry, I can't keep it to myself anymore. Can I just I want to talk to you about this tea towel thing,
2: Katie? You can talk to me about anything at any point, but I do feel <laughs> that you've talked to me an awful lot about your tea
0: towel. <laughs> I don't know what you mean by that. <laughs> There's a lot to say about my tea towel. Anyway, it's merchandise. It's we didn't start the fire merchandise, and the elves in the workshop are coming up with some goodies. So I just I want you all out there to gird your loins.
2: network a place where you belong.
3: A news story gets shared by a friend on social media or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum, In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation.